This is Macro Horizons, episode 155, Trading by Committee, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of January 24th. And as today marks the final day the sun sets before 5 p.m. until November, we cannot help but observe that things are looking a bit brighter. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market's bearish repricing took another leg higher in yields. Ten years got to the one 85 to 190 range that we'd been targeting, but it appears, at least for the time being, that 190 will represent the upper bound of trading for 10-year rates, at least until we get through the FOMC meeting. In terms of curve shape, 530s continued to flatten. We saw 530s dip below 50 basis points, representing a continuation of one of the key trends that we anticipate will be enduring throughout the bulk of this year. Now, that's predicated on the idea that the economy continues to rebound, inflation remains on the forefront of policymakers' minds, and the steady progress towards a series of rate hikes continues. One background aspect of the price action so far year to date has been a gradual weakening in equity prices in the U.S. Now, with the NASDAQ 10% off the highs, one might argue it's not necessarily gradual. However, from the perspective of monetary policymakers, a steady grind lower in stock prices that doesn't spike the VIX and subsequently tighten financial conditions is arguably a welcome development, if for no other reason than what we're seeing at the moment is financial markets pricing in a tightening cycle. There's been plenty of observations made that there is a dearth of market participants at this moment who have seen a true tightening cycle from the Fed comparable to the experience of 2000 or 2004 to 2006. While there might be some credence to that observation, we'll note that if one looks at forward pricing of Fed funds and the terminal rate assumption obvious via OIS, then it's clear that the market is pricing in a tightening cycle. The biggest unknown is whether or not current pricing is sufficient for the tightening cycle that will ultimately come to fruition. This issue will clearly be topical at the upcoming Fed meeting as investors will look to Powell for insight into the pace of tightening as well as liftoff timing, which the market, ourselves included, currently assume will be the March 16th FOMC meeting. The takedown of supply recently has been strong for the nominal market, with the 20 billion 20-year auction stopping through 1.5 basis points. 
Tips struggled a bit, however, with the 10-year tips auction tailing 2.1 basis points. Now, this is certainly consistent with two dynamics at play in the tips market. One is investors beginning to be cautious given the implications from the Fed stepping back from buying bonds as well as shrinking the balance sheet. In addition, and perhaps this is more fundamental in terms of investor demand for inflation protection, if one believes that the Fed is stepping up to combat inflation and to keep inflation expectations well anchored, then it follows intuitively that there would be less demand for an inflation-protected Treasury security. Well, Ian, it was a short week, but it got started with another redefinition, if not entirely recasting, of the trading range in 10-year yields. We challenged 190. But since then, we've now settled into what I would probably argue is a little bit of a pause in terms of conviction until Wednesday's Fed meeting. I think that's a fair assessment. And when the sell-off initially started, we were targeting a range of 185 to 190 for a period of consolidation ahead of the Fed. And then the possibility for a breakout above 2% in 10-year yields will really come into focus in the window between the January Fed meeting and the March 16th FOMC meeting. Now, this isn't to imply that it will be a straight shot there. And in fact, the consolidation that's currently underway speaks to the notion that something has been priced in. And by that, I'm simply observing that if you look at the Fed Fund's futures market, you can see there's 100 plus basis points of tightening already baked in for 2022. Five-year, five-year OIS is north of 175, which suggests that at a minimum, that's what the market is anticipating in terms of the terminal rate. And we know from official commentary that the balance sheet unwind is set to commence this year as well. So given all of that information and still 10-year yields are struggling to break through 190, the question that comes to my mind is, well then, what will it take for the type of breakout we're looking for? And in thinking about what that breakout might look like, The price action in the tips market has been defining in treasuries over the first three weeks of the year, and the relationship between break-evens and real yields will continue to be instrumental in evaluating where it ultimately is we see 10-year yields peak over the coming months. This past week, we saw real yields reach the highest level they have since Q1 of last year, but unlike last year, we saw break-evens drop below 240. So taking this as some evidence in the market's faith that the Fed has the ability to offset inflation it's reasonable then to assume that the break of 190 10-year yields will be a function of higher real yields. That is, unless there emerges greater skepticism that the Fed is able to effectively offset some of the supply-side inflationary pressures that we've seen over the past several quarters. So far, it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case, but depending on Powell's messaging on Wednesday, could potentially be an inflection point to watch for. And moreover, Ben, I would add that yes, there is a risk that inflation does continue to accelerate from here and outperforms expectations into the second quarter, but the Fed still has room to indicate that it's going to be accelerating rate hikes beyond four in 2022. Recall, they could go a quarter point every meeting. They could start at 50. There's a lot of 
opportunities within the forward path of policy rates for the Fed to further reinforce their willingness and commitment to fighting inflation. And that brings us back to 10-year break-evens below 240 at this point in the cycle. I'm completely on board with the interpretation of this as a sign of Fed credibility. And I'd also add that the Fed has to be looking at this price action and patting themselves on the back. Because frankly, there hasn't been any type of tantrum. Even the modest pullback in equity prices thus far has been relatively orderly. And we've fully priced in at least a pedestrian tightening cycle. Ian, you mentioned briefly the idea of a 50 basis point liftoff in March. And this is something that we've not only heard a lot about and discussed in client conversations this past week, but also seen reflected in the Fed Fund's futures market. There's now more than 25 basis points of tightening priced into the April Fed Fund's contract, which points to admittedly a small but a non-zero probability that the Fed moves by 50. How are you thinking about that as a policy option at this stage in the normalization cycle? Well, it's certainly something that the market has been contemplating. My take is that at least in the beginning of the cycle, the Fed has little incentive to materially depart from the 25 basis point cadence, whether that ends up being per quarter or per meeting, I suspect would actually be the Fed's preferred shift if they decide they need to be more hawkish rather than increasing 50 basis points at a time. I'd also note that the last time the Fed increased 50 basis points was in 2000. And prior to that, it was in 1995, both of which occurred when Greenspan was at the helm of the Fed. And quite frankly, monetary policy transparency was in a different place. Since Greenspan's term at the Fed, we've seen a marked increase in Fed transparency. We've seen the introduction of SEP and the dot plot, as well as a willingness on the part of the Fed to let a variety of Fed speakers communicate with the market. This is relevant insofar as the Fed now has a much better track record of forward guidance and policy communication. So while during Greenspan's term, there might have been some signaling incentive for a 50 basis point move, I struggle to see that now. In addition, recall in 2000, the 50 basis point move was the last of the tightening cycle and effectively communicated as such. Ian, you and I are definitely on the same page, and your point about Fed transparency is a great one. Before the communication moratorium took hold this week, we heard from a lot of Fed speakers, Chair Powell included, and even the most hawkish among them did not even offer so much as a hint at a 50 basis point liftoff. We've also heard the observation made that the Fed should move to shock and awe the market in terms of their commitment to offset inflation. I'm a little bit skeptical of that idea, if only given the fact that we've seen the Fed is not really in the shock and awe business. A more measured and gradual removal of accommodation would be in keeping what they have done historically. Obviously, the inflation landscape is unlike anything we've seen in 30 years. So that's certainly a compelling counterpoint. But to me, the path of least resistance seems that the Fed would like to start out more gradual and accelerate if needed, rather than take that big first step approach. Yes, and the notion that they would start with 50 basis points and do true QT via selling from Soma strikes me as all shock and no awe. 
And by that, I mean what happens to the equity market in the event that the Fed does take such a dramatic step? What happens to risk assets? And what does that imply for overall financial conditions? And I think the answer to that is pretty straightforward. While we might see a 25 to 30 basis point increase in 10-year yields, that would be more than reversed, at least in the long end, once investors started to price in an even more dramatic cycle with presumably a terminal rate far north of 250. And that's why even in such a scenario, I continue to think that the 530s flattener makes a lot of sense fundamentally. And in thinking about the shape of the curve in the very near term, before the Fed, remember, we do get two and five year supply, sevens will follow on Thursday, which should add a degree of flattening pressure, if only to incorporate a relative concession for these front end auctions. For twos and fives specifically, it's going to be very telling to see how aggressively investors are willing to bid for the sectors of the market that are going to be most sensitive to the coming hiking campaign. In the event we see two good auction results, that would support this idea that the amount of normalization currently priced in is more or less appropriate given the fundamental information we have in hand. Conversely, a really strong bid that drives two-year yields, say, back into the mid-90s, that would represent some pushback that perhaps the market has become a bit overly hawkish. I'd suggest, Ben, that you and I might remember the mid-90s slightly differently. What makes you think I remember the mid-90s? Fair enough. But in contemplating how well the market is currently calibrated for what will ultimately be the Fed's tightening campaign, I think it is notable that the sell-off has stalled out where it has. The number of investor responses that have been something to the effect of, why aren't tens at 225 yet, has struck me as implying a degree of inevitability for a steeper yield curve in treasuries that I continue to struggle with being necessary, given everything that we know about not only the fundamentals of the U.S. and global economies, but also what we have learned recently in terms of the Fed's response function to developments with inflation and growth expectations where they are. And Ian, we've talked a lot about how this curve flattening dynamic is more traditionally something that takes place much later in an economic cycle. And we've heard the observation made from clients and included in the December meeting minutes that one of the reasons the Fed is opting to be more aggressive with the balance sheet this time than during 2017 is that balance sheet rundown is a way to remove monetary policy accommodation without providing the same degree of a flattening impulse that rate hikes would. So running down the balance sheet a bit more aggressively is not going to weigh on the front end of the treasury market to the same degree that faster rate hikes or larger rate hikes would. But then this begs the question, what's 300 or $600 billion worth of balance sheet runoff worth in terms of rate hikes? Estimates that we've seen suggest that given the outright size of the balance sheet, whereas during the last cycle, one might have assumed $300 billion worth of balance sheet runoff was equivalent to a quarter point hike. At this point, we're thinking five, $600 billion would be needed to get to the equivalent of a 25 basis point hike. So this implies that while we might see a quicker path to a terminal balance sheet runoff cap, that it won't offset the Fed's need to deliver a series of at least seven or eight quarter point moves over the course of the full cycle. Yeah, there's been a lot in the news lately about cycles. Yeah, stationary or otherwise. I'm more of a penny farthing man myself. Yeah, 
That's in the barn behind the combustion engine vehicle. Classic planned obsolescence. Story of my career. In the week ahead, the treasury market will have a great deal of information to contend with as investors recalibrate expectations as the beginning of the tightening cycle approaches. We have three coupon auctions, 54 billion two years on Monday, 55 billion five years on Tuesday. Wednesday, the Treasury Department takes a break because of the Fed meeting. And then on Thursday, we see $53 billion in sevens. Not only do we have this array of nominal Treasury supply, but we also get the first look at Q4 real GDP. The consensus currently stands at 5.3% on an annualized basis. Now, while there is clearly a fair amount of variability around that estimate, given the potential impact of Omicron and where we are in the pandemic, nonetheless, it's difficult to argue that that's not a strong quarter of growth as 2021 came to an end. The main event for the week ahead will be the FOMC meeting on Wednesday. The Fed is not expected to announce anything dramatic, although there has been some chatter about an earlier end to QE than the mid-March end that's currently scheduled. At the end of the day, we expect that the committee will focus on laying the groundwork to deliver the first rate hike of the cycle on March 16th. This is very consensus, and as we look at what's priced into the market, it's difficult not to assume a quarterly cadence of 25 basis points, all else being equal. The balance sheet runoff and the precise timing associated with that will remain an open question, and we suspect that we will get some loose guidance, if nothing else, from Powell at the press conference. Any questions that are left unanswered in terms of liftoff will leave investors waiting to see the minutes release from this meeting. In terms of implications for the treasury market, tens and thirties have found a moment of consolidation that we expect will hold through the Fed meeting. Once we have the new information monetary policy makers are willing to give us, that's when we'll either see a classic sell the rumor by the fact moment, which would push rates lower, at least until we get a better look at the inflation data for the month of January. We maintain that the most important window for the Treasury market to see 10-year yields push toward 2% or higher is going to be the period between Wednesday's Fed meeting and the March 16th meeting. The logic here being that as the market gets a better sense of the Fed's preferred hiking cadence and balance sheet normalization strategy, that rates will have another opportunity to reset to what will presumably be effectively a tightening campaign that's on autopilot until something breaks. Now, this has long been one of our core tenets for how monetary policy makers behave. Specifically, once the Fed starts hiking, they'll continue on the rate normalization process until something breaks, presumably resulting in a fine-tuning rate cut as the market attempts to avoid hiking into a recession. We don't see a material slowdown or a recession on the horizon, certainly not in 2022, but that doesn't mean that that risk won't continue to contribute to the flattening trend that remains in place, and we expect will continue to define the Treasury market as the Fed prepares for rate liftoff in March. 
We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with the technicals back in focus as investors await the Fed, we're reminded of the sage chartist wisdom that sometimes it's doji if you do, doji if you don't. Or, as they now say in crypto, it's a doji, doji market out there. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.